of the Been There, Read That podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Batty, and as always, this program is brought to you by ChristianResearcher.com. I apologize for the kind of hit-and-miss nature of the podcast. I've been having a little bit of a crazy schedule, a lot of things going on here lately, and I haven't been as regular in my postings. I apologize about that. I know that a lot of my listening audience is also traveling. You have kind of a hit-and-miss schedule in the summertime. Hopefully, I can get on a bit of a better roll and delivering content that will be helpful, and maybe things will settle down here in the near future in my schedule. Today I want to talk about a question that a lot of people ask me about. One of the first things when they find out that I'm a book dealer is, uh, what's your favorite commentary set, or what commentary sets do you recommend? And in discussing commentary sets, we're going to discuss several different aspects of things. Uh, We're going to talk about study techniques, study tips, how to build your library, things along those lines. But before we kind of get into that whole discussion about commentaries and commentary sets, I want to ask two questions. The reason I want to ask these two questions is because there are two groups of people who are irritated with me, and quite frankly, I'm kind of irritated with them as well. And these questions kind of speak to the center of the disagreement that I have and that they have with me. First question is, number one, should we even use Bible commentaries? Obviously, I believe we should use them. That's why I sell them. There are a number of folks who don't believe we should use them and are irritated and upset with me because I do sell Bible commentaries. So I want to address that issue briefly. And then the second question is, should we only use Church of Christ commentaries? There are some folks who don't have a problem with using commentaries, but they don't like anything outside of a Church of Christ realm. And therefore, they get irritated and upset with me because I sell commentaries that aren't from a church of, exclusively from a Church of Christ background. I do sell Church of Christ commentaries, and I like them, but I also sell commentaries and books that are outside that scope as well. And so I want to address those two issues, and we might, may spend an entire podcast episode in the future addressing these two issues in greater depth. But before we talk about commentaries, we need to just in general discuss the question of should we even be using them and which ones or what's, what realm should we be reading within. In order to answer the first question, should we use commentaries, I'll just share with you a quote from C.H. Spurgeon that summarizes how I feel about the issue. I thought he put it well. He said, The man who never reads will never be read. He who never quotes will never be quoted. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves that he has no brains of his own. Now that's kind of sharp and pointed, but I think it gets down to the point of the issue. There's a thing called wisdom. We learn and we gain wisdom and understanding and insight from other people who know more about the Bible than we do. And it's foolish to avoid sitting at their feet and learning from them. I want to put some Bible to this. Look at Proverbs chapter 13 verse 20. There the Bible says, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. 
If we want to become wise, we have to go to the wise. We have to go to those who have wisdom to provide it to us and learn from them. That's what we're doing when we pick up a Bible commentary. We're going to someone who is wise, who has understanding, who has worked diligently to gain wisdom and understanding, and we are learning from them. Again, in Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 15, the Bible says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he, he who heeds counsel is wise. You can come up with a lot of thoughts and theories in your own mind that sound good to you that are absolutely foolish, and those foolish thoughts can be exposed and expelled by approaching wise counsel. We are commanded to seek out wise counsel, and that's part of what we're doing whenever we pick up commentaries. Commentaries are giving counsel. They're giving advice. They're giving understanding uh, from the Bible. Uh, Sometimes our biblical, our method of studying the Bible is not so biblical. And what I mean by that is a lot of times we read the Bible and then we, we seek after our own understanding of things to the neglect of the counsel of others. Let's look at the biblical pattern in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. There are two things that we need to do. We need to read the Word of God, as they did on this occasion. The reason they're reading the Word of God is because it had been lost. They had not been reading the Word of God. And that describes a lot of Christians today. They, ha they have neglected the reading of God's Word, and so to them it is lost. And the only way you can cure that is by getting familiar with it and reading it. You have to learn the facts. Now, after you've read, you have to ask the question, what does it mean? Reading without understanding is absolutely pointless and fruitless. And so Nehemiah provided understanding of the reading that they were given. That's what we do when we preach from the pulpits in our congregation. We read the Bible and we give the understanding. At least that's what we should be doing. You have to read the Word of God, and then you have to give the understanding. A Bible commentator is simply doing that. He is setting the text before you, and then he is trying to give the sense or the understanding of what is being said. That is a noble endeavor. Now, having said that, you have to realize that just as not everything the preacher says is true, not everything the commentator says is true. And you have to use wise understanding. You have to think critically about what you read, just as you must think critically about what you hear from the pulpit when taught at church. Commentaries, like preachers, are fallible. They can make mistakes. And so listen to them when they teach truth. Use wise discerning understanding, and reject them whenever they teach false doctrine, just as you would within an assembly of the Lord's church. Now, to the second point, should we read commentaries that are outside of Church of Christ's scope? This touches on um, a, a sensitive issue with a lot of people, but I believe some of this stems from a false concept of enlightenment. A lot of people misunderstand what is taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you want to have a discussion with me or have a further, uh, read some more material about that, I'd be happy to provide it. But a lot of people go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and think that the, the spiritual man is the Christian and that the, uh, the non-spiritual man is the unbeliever, and that's not what's under consideration. The spiritual man in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is an apostle, and the uh, non-spiritual person is the uninspired person, such as you and I. 
And so there's this false sense of or false understanding of enlightenment. And sometimes we get to thinking that because we are saved and we are Christians, we have enlightenment or understanding that the denominational people don't have. It's interesting. Denominational people think that they're saved and that they have enlightening enlightenment that other unsaved people do not have. The fact is, the Bible is truth revealed from God. And you don't have to have a direct operation of the Holy Spirit or spiritual enlightenment in order to understand God's Word. Believer and unbeliever can pick it up and read it and understand it alike. It's interesting. I have a commentary by Umberto Casuto, who was a Jew. And when he's writing on Genesis and Exodus, he gives a lot of very good, wise insights and helps in understanding because of his background in study and work. There are a number of people, Christian and non-Christian alike, who can go to the Bible and see truth because God has given truth. He has revealed truth. He has made it known. He doesn't have to make it known again to only Christians. He has simply put forth his word and expects people to pick up the Bible, saved or lost, read it, understand it, and obey it. There's this concept that it denominational writers, since they are not saved, they can't have truth. They can't have any truth. And that's simply a false concept. And there's also a false concept that kind of coincides with that, that since Church of Christ people are saved, they have only truth. They can't teach false doctrine. And that's also a false statement. Whenever we talk about Church of Christ commentaries, uh, they can be wrong as anybody on different aspects of the Word of God. For instance, uh, Kaufman in Kaufman's commentary series a set that is highly respected and quoted by a lot of people in the book of Romans he f- straight up taught Calvinism many times and many of our brethren warn folks that if you study Romans avoid Kaufman's commentary on Romans because it is riddled with Calvinism. Uh, Hiram Christopher who wrote a book called The Remedial System in the old Restoration Reprint Library. This book is recommended by some of our preachers. It's written by a Church of Christ author. In that book, he teaches theistic evolution. Are there some good things in that book? Yes. Does he teach false doctrine in the book? Yes. He was a fallible man. The fact is, just because he was a Church of Christ preacher did not mean that he was right on everything. Alexander Campbell didn't really know what he thought about the Holy Spirit. He spoke out of both sides of his mouth. He can be quoted on many different aspects holding multiple positions on the same issue regarding the Holy Spirit. Many restoration preachers like Campbell were coming out of denominations, and they had a lot of denominational baggage with them, so depending on where you caught them on their journey, some of that baggage showed up. They taught true things, and they also taught false things. Church of Christ preachers, just like denominational preachers, can preach some things true and some things false. The question is, what does the Bible say and where is truth? And whenever you pick up any book written by an uninspired, fallible man, be he Church of Christ background or denominational background, you have to think with a discerning mind. You should never follow blindly any man. Listen, heed wise counsel, seek understanding, but do not follow blindly. I would also state it this way. We need to develop the ability to think critically not skeptically or thoughtlessly. We have an issue today that uh, the idea is we should put a safety net around ourselves and block out anything that is not false and never never allow it to even surface. That's that's not really how you 
how you develop yourself spiritually. You think about it from a medical standpoint. If a person lives in a bubble and was to ward off and not be exposed to any type of disease, are they a healthy individual? Not necessarily. What happens if that bubble is burst and they come into contact with something accidentally? Well, they haven't developed the ability to ward off those diseases. And so they become more susceptible than if they had interacted and learned to overcome them. We need to think critically, learn to think critically, so that if we are exposed to false doctrine, we recognize it for what it is, and we are able to overcome it. What happens is people oftentimes are taught the truth and learn, they learn to follow it in a blind sense. They haven't learned to think critically, and so when false doctrine arises for the first time and their bubble, so to speak, has been burst, they fall for error because they don't know how to discern truth from error. I'm not arguing that we need to study error extensively and focus on error, but I'm saying we need to study truth and learn how to interact and counteract error. And not be afraid when we are exposed to it. Okay? Now, having said all of that, I want to go back to the original question, the main topic of our study. Like I said, we may discuss some of this that we've talked about more in future episodes of the podcast. But for now, we're going to kind of switch gears and we're talking about commentaries. People say, ask all the time, Nathan, what's your favorite commentary set? Honestly, I don't have a favorite commentary set. I want to talk about the positives and the drawbacks of commentary sets in general. Basically, you typically have three types of commentary sets. One, it's a commentary set where one man has written the whole set, such as R.C.H. Linsky set, Lang's commentary set, Barnes notes, uh, sets like that that we're familiar with. The second type of set is where you have different guys write different commentaries within a set. For instance, you have the Bible study textbook series where it was divvied up divvied up amongst different authors. The Contending for the Faith series has been divided up amongst different authors. A lot of commentary sets are that way. And then the third uh, type of commentary is where you have a single commentary, for instance, on the book of, say, Timothy, where each chapter is written by a different author. Now, there are drawbacks and, and challenges with each of these type of commentary sets, and we'll talk about that. Let's talk first about a commentary set, such as Linsky set or Barnes Note set, where everything is written by one guy. Okay, one guy can't know everything there is to know about the Bible. Okay, it's kind of like approaching, going to a general practitioner doctor versus going to a specialist doctor who deals only with cardiology. Okay? Your general practitioner can know some things about a lot of things, but he doesn't have the expertise that is necessary to perform brain surgery. And we have to recognize the strengths and weaknesses of his, of his background. That's the same way it is with commentators who have written on the entire Bible. They have some good strengths, they have some good general information to provide, but they can't be an expert on everything it's kind of like the old saying, a jack of all trades and a master of none. One guy cannot master every particular aspect of the Bible. Some guys spend their entire life dealing with one book, and they still have readily admit that there are areas they haven't figured out yet. That's because the Bible cannot be exhausted. It is an incredible book. It can never be exhausted. One man will never know every single thing there is to know about the Bible. That doesn't mean that a man can't know anything or that he can't know a lot of things. And so 
again, one of the challenges of a commentary set that's written by one guy is there are going to be some natural drawbacks simply because one man can't know everything. I think about James E. Smith, who's one of my favorite authors. He's written commentaries on every single book of the Old Testament. In fact, I think maybe the whole Bible. And when you start reading Smith, you begin to understand his style. You begin to understand some of the the benefits and the drawbacks. He can't. He doesn't chase all of the rabbits down. He doesn't get into critical content depth because it's beyond the scope of what he's seeking to accomplish and maybe what he can accomplish. Uh, you can't write about all the Bible like he has set out to do while chasing down every rabbit that there is to chase. Okay, let's talk about books, uh, commentary sets where different books are written by different guys. One of the challenges of those types of sets is that there are some books that are good within the set and there are some books that are not so good within the set. You have some guys who are diligent and have done their homework and have really provided help. I think about, for instance, the Bible Commentary textbook series. Uh, Harold Fowler wrote an extremely long four-volume set on the Gospel of Matthew that's really good and helpful. In that same series, Paul T. Butler has written a few of the volumes and done, I really, I think, a pretty good job in his, his commentaries. However, there were other volumes that were in that set by Don DeWelt that I, I feel like are basically worthless. His Romans volume is essentially worthless to me. Uh, and so you have this kind of hit and miss, some good, some bad within the set. That's how any set is that has been written by multiple authors. There will be people you find helpful, and there will be others that are not so helpful. The good thing about that type of a set is that you don't have to purchase the whole set. For instance, if, if you need Fowler on Matthew, and he's one of the best on Matthew, just buy Fowler. And you can avoid buying all the other volumes that may not be helpful. So that is kind of the, the positive side of a commentary set where different authors wrote different volumes. And then you have the, the approach in some volumes where a single book of the Bible is discussed and multiple guys wrote on different various chapters and they're, they're really the, I think that's a terrible approach to writing a commentary because there's not continuity and flow of thought you have guys within the same volume within the same book of the Bible disagreeing with one another and it, it comes out as a great hodgepodge and I'm, I'm really opposed to that style of writing one of the downsides of buying commentary sets is that they're quite expensive you know you're going to spend at least $100 on about any given commentary set. And you can spend upwards of $500, even thousands of dollars. I've sold some of the complete biblical library sets for uh, Old and New Testament for over $2,000. Uh, that may be a good commentary set. I don't know. People have asked me about it, and I have sold a couple sets. And they asked me, is that a good commentary set? And in my mind, it's not worth $2,000. I don't know of any commentary set that is worth $2,000. I would rather take the $2,000 I would I would have invested in that set and build a very nice, well-rounded library that was much more beneficial and useful than that one commentary set. So that's kind of that's kind of one of the drawbacks of it. If you're going to buy commentary sets, which I don't, you know, I'm for people buying some commentary sets. My suggestion would be, by and large, to buy them digitally. I'm not huge on digital books, but the fact is, when you're talking about commentary sets, very few people are going to sit down, pick up a volume of a commentary set, and read it from cover to cover. I don't know what it is about commentary sets, but that rarely happens. And so since commentary sets are generally used in a reference type of method, 
I would suggest getting them digitally. If you will look and be patient and wait, you can buy a lot of commentary sets on sale in digital format for very cheap. Uh, Olive Tree is a really nice Bible software program that often runs really nice sales, especially around holiday times, uh, where you can buy, for instance, Linsky's commentary set for 50 bucks. I think that's a good investment of 50 bucks. And the other advantage is if once you've bought digitally, when you travel, you can have it on your iPad and you can travel with a large library. So if you're somewhere and you need to do some research, that you have a nice library that you can reference on the go especially if you're going to travel internationally, that is extremely helpful. And I would probably invest more money in digital books if if I were going to do more international travel. So that's something to keep in mind. I think there's a better way to build a commentary library than buying sets. Sets look really nice on your shelf. There is some benefit to them, but I do think they have limitations to them as we've talked about. So I want to talk about what I believe is a better way of building your library and building commentaries. I think basically for any book of the Bible, you need at least three commentaries that are from a different background and style. You need, first of all, a big picture introduction to whichever book of the Bible that you're studying. And then you need to follow that up with a moderate read that introduces you to more of the general difficulties Uh, major keys to the book and develops some meat to place on the bone structure that you've developed in your big picture read. And then third, you need a critical commentary. And we'll talk more about each of those momentarily. I want to say this as a disclaimer as we get started here. I don't have a suggestion for a big picture, moderate, and critical commentary on every book of the Bible. But these are the three areas I focus on when I begin studying a book of the Bible. And I would suggest very strongly, we'll probably do a whole podcast episode about this at some point, but you need to start picking up your Bible, choosing a book of the Bible, and choosing to study extensively a book at a time. Now, right now, in my personal studies and in my congregational teaching, I am teaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. I've been doing this for probably about... Uh, eight months now, and my study actually began several months before that. I've probably spent about 10 months within Corinthians right now, and I'm only in chapter, about halfway through chapter 6. I always pick up, try to find a book that deals with structure first, gives me the big picture view, then I advance to a moderate read once I have a structure in my mind, and then start advancing to more difficult critical reads. And I'm going to talk about each of those steps in greater detail now. Let's talk about the big picture view. Structure is critically important to understanding the Bible. How the Bible says is just as important as what the Bible says. You cannot separate content from arrangement of the content. And here's a good illustration of this. This Bible does not always present stories in chronological order. That's how we like to think is chronologically, but in the Middle East they think circularly. They think in uh, sets rather than in linear fashion. Let me give you a couple examples of this. For instance, there are narrative books of the Bible. We really like like reading narrative. Narrative is very enjoyable. But narrative is not always presented in chronological sequence. For instance, in the book of Judges, many of the judges were living simultaneously with one another, and that's not readily discerned by just picking up and reading the book of Judges. A lot of times in our mind, when we read Judges, we think uh, you have one judge dies, there's this space of time, and then the next judge rises to the occasion, then he dies, and you have another space of time. No, Samuel 
and Samson were probably living and ruling or judging simultaneously with one another. That's not something you first pick up on. So if you had a big picture structure book of Judges, you would realize that Judges is not arranged chronologically, it is arranged topically. It has a purpose. There is meaning and understanding that is found in the structure that you cannot grasp outside of understanding the structure of the book. Another and, for example, the Gospels. The Gospels are not always arranged chronologically. We talk about the Gospel of Luke as being the most chronological, but not even Luke is always chronological. An example, Luke presents Jesus right after he's baptized as giving his first Gospel sermon in the city of Nazareth. But in the other Gospels, the Nazareth sermon comes about midway, if not two-thirds of the way, into Jesus' ministry. And the fact is... Luke has chosen to tell the story of the Sermon at Nazareth at the early stage of his gospel for a structural purpose. He's wanting us to see the ministry of Christ in his gospel through the lens of this first sermon. And if you're thinking only chronologically, you're going to miss the point, or you're going to start thinking that Matthew, Mark, and John have messed up their chronologies or are not being chronological. And they're not always chronological, it's a, it's a fact, but neither is Luke. And so no matter which gospel you're looking at, you have to ask, what is the purpose of the structure? How is the book structured? Structured helps build a scaffolding for the book that we can later go back and complete the house of God's building. It's kind of like the meat and bones analogy. Structure gives us the bones, and then the next level gives us some meat to put on those bones. I'll give you a couple of good recommendations, examples of what I'm talking about when we talk about a big picture intro structure book. Uh, a really good one, I think, on the book of Revelation is Matthew Emerson's Between the Cross and the Throne. He gives you an introduction to structure. He gives you some tidbits to hold on to so that you can start going now and you're prepared to go and start reading and studying the book of Revelation. I think everybody that is going to do a study of the book of Revelation, if you've never read anything on it, first read should be Matthew Emerson's Between the Cross and the Throne. Uh, an example from the Gospel of Matthew, I believe, is God With Us by D.A. Carson. He shows the oscillation between narrative and uh, teaching sections within Matthew's gospel, and he gives you a good structure of how you can conceptualize in your mind the flow of the gospel of Matthew, and that's really, really helpful because after we have developed a structure that's going to take us to our second step, which would be a moderate read of the book. Within a moderate read, one of the things that gets lost sometimes is the structure because there's a lot of meat being placed. If you don't have a structure firmly established in your mind, you're going to lose sight of it. And that's not to say a moderate read doesn't discuss structure. It's just saying that that's not its primary or sole focus. It's, it's there to give meat and start adding on to the structure that you've already built. And the way I would illustrate this is sometimes it's hard to see the forest because of the trees. The moderate approach is zooming in your lens on your camera and focusing on individual trees rather than the panoramic view of the forest itself. That's why it's important to establish your structure first and then go into your moderate read. Moderate read starts adding meat to the bones. It starts telling you what some of the key concepts are within the book, uh, large chunk portions at a time, what's going on here, and kind of tying the book together in content. Uh, and a couple of good examples of what I would consider a moderate read would be in the book of Revelations. After you've read Matthew Emerson's book, Between the Cross and the Throne, you go on to Albertus Peter's, The Woman 
The Lamb, the Woman, and the Dragon. Or you might read Ray Summers' book, Worthy is the Lamb. Those are both good moderate reads that begin to introduce you in a greater detail to some of the main aspects and points of the book. Uh, if you're going to study the Gospel of Matthew after you've read D.A. Carson's God with us, I'd recommend going to Brother Mike Criswell's Contending for the Faith commentary series on, on Matthew. Uh, he did a really good job of introducing key concepts, giving you a moderate overview of the entire book. I think that's extremely helpful. After you have read your intro and done your moderate read, it's time to advance to a critical read. And this is where a lot of people get lost. And it's important to read the intro and the moderate read first before approaching the critical content because you're not going to appreciate or understand everything that you're dealing with there. A critical content, a critical commentary, is meant to provide details, uh, very fine-tuned, fine-focused details of the book of the Bible that you're studying. It begins to critique linguistic nuances and details and arguments that are based on tightly woven webs of linguistic background. That's, that's not where you want to begin your study of the Gospel of Matthew, but after you've built your structure and you've, you have an understanding of what's going on in the book, it, it's helpful to start chasing down some of the, the finer points of the book. It provides points of view and a detailed analysis of each. You know, there are many passages that, that at first glance you wouldn't think it was a controversial passage, but they become key battlegrounds, and critical commentaries give you the background, the history of the debates and what the key focuses are in the, the debate. And even when they are wrong in their conclusion about what the answer is in the debate, they've been helpful in providing you the background of the debate itself. That's very, very helpful. The critical commentaries chase down the rabbits. They begin to fill in the cracks that have formed in your discussion in a moderate read. One of the problems with critical commentaries is sometimes it's an overload of information. You can feel overwhelmed. For instance, G.K. Bill's commentary on the book of Revelation is, I don't know how many pages that thing is. That thing is a massive commentary, probably over a thousand pages. And if you gave someone that, their first reading, say, here, here you go, go read Bill on Revelation. He's one of the best, one of the best. They're going to pick that up and very quickly get discouraged with a thousand pages. That just seems overwhelming. Now, if you have already built your structure and done your moderate read, maybe it's not so overwhelming. Maybe it has greater interest and maybe it can answer more questions that you have. But if you haven't done those first two stages, you don't even know which questions you should be asking or why some of this material is being brought up in the first place. I think about Proverbs chapter 18, verse 17. There the Bible says, The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. Sometimes in your moderate read, a guy will present a position, and you think, whoa, that's, that's great, that's good, that's preachable, it's applicable, that, that's it, that's what I need. And then you read a critical commentary, and they, decide, they dis dissect his position and show you that this was the wrong method or this was the wrong point being made in this passage. And critical commentaries are helpful in thinking critically, thus the name critical commentary, in dis dissecting God's word. One of the suggestions I would make at this point is get suggestions from older brethren who have done extensive reading within a book of the Bible. For instance, if I was going to study the Gospel of Matthew in great detail, go to Mike Criswell, ask him what's a good intro book, good structure book, then what's a good moderate read, just maybe skip that part and read his commentary, and then ask what is a critical book 
to start reading as well. I want to make a few points here. Just because a position is taken by one of our brethren or a good commentary commentator that we like, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily right. You still have to use a discerning mind. We talked about this earlier, but we need to be reminded of that at this point. Number two, the simplest solution is not always the correct one, and neither is the most complicated. Sometimes we like a position because it's clear, uh, it's simple, but that doesn't mean it's right. Other times people like positions because they're very complicated and twisted, and that's generally not the correct one either. Uh, number three, if you can't understand what you're reading, and that's where we find ourselves sometimes in critical commentaries. If we don't understand what we're reading, here's a couple of tips that I would I would ask you to consider. Number one, maybe reread the material and read it more slowly. There are some books that I have to read just a couple pages of, put it down, and think about it for quite a while. And even then, sometimes, I just don't understand what I'm reading. So what do I do after I've read it several times, I've read it several times, and I don't understand it? What am I supposed to do? Uh, ask someone for help. Find someone that's smarter than you are that has read it and has more of a background and ask them what is being said or ask them if there is another critical commentary that can be more readable for you and more helpful. Uh, find someone that you can understand. Now, what this this is really important. We have to find books that we can actually understand and comprehend or else it's pointless in reading it. What works for one person does not work for others because our brains work differently. We have different levels of training. We have different levels of ability. And this is one area I think people become frustrated. They'll, they'll say, what's a good commentary, Nathan, on, on the book of Matthew? And you say, well, R.T. France, he's a pretty good commentary. That's a critical commentary. It's going to chase all the details. If I was going to have one commentary on Matthew from a denominational background, I'd have R.T. Francis. And so they go out, they invest $50 in Francis' commentary, and then they come back and they're frustrated with me because it's not helpful for them. Why is it not helpful for them? Is it because he doesn't have good content? No, he's got good content. Maybe they're just not prepared to read it. Maybe they don't have the structure from the intro read that they need. Maybe they don't have the moderate background to appreciate everything that he's saying. Maybe it's simply over their head. So, you need to find people that you can understand and that you can work with. And you also need to get, give yourself the proper foundation that helps you continually build on your knowledge and ability. Something that's constantly pushing you, you might say. It is critical to give yourself a foundation so that you can appreciate deeper things. We understand this principle in the secular world. You don't just throw a teenager into calculus class. No, we send them to geometry and algebra 1 and algebra 2 and pre-cal before we dump them into calculus. Could a person go straight into calculus and learn and understand it? Maybe. I don't know. It depends on how intelligent the person is, I suppose, and how hard they are able to work. But it doesn't make sense to kill yourself trying to learn lesson 1 of the calculus book when you could go and you could learn from the several stages that are supposed to come before it. Commentaries are often detrimental to our study rather than helpful because we are not prepared and equipped as readers to use them properly. And I, I would illustrate this way. In the Old Testament, David was going to go out and do battle with Goliath, and Saul places upon him all of his battle armor. He puts on the helmet and this breastplate and his sword and everything, and David's sitting there and he's saying, Look, I'm not trained in these matters of warfare. This is cumbersome. This is awkward. I'm going to use what 
I know how to use. That's my sling and some stones. But I want to say this. David fought many battles after that battle. And he didn't always ride into battle with a sling and a few stones. He developed. He fought with what he knew at the time, but he also trained and developed his ability to use other tools. That's where we're, what we're talking about with commentaries. Maybe right now you need to start out with the intro reads only. And after you have an introduction to the Bible, then you start stepping up to a moderate read. And then you've read extensively from a moderate level, and then you go to a critical commentary background. You cannot jump straight into critical commentaries and walk away feeling satisfied and benefiting immensely from what's being placed before you. You're simply not prepared if you've not done the work to get to that type of level of reading. Give you a couple examples of good critical commentaries. G.K. Bill, I mentioned him on Revelation. I think that's a pretty good commentary, but you are not prepared to read that if you have done absolutely no reading within the book of Revelation previously. You will get discouraged. You will feel overwhelmed. You will have it looking like a pretty book on your shelf, and people come over and say, oh, you got G.K. Bill on your shelf. If you're not reading Bill, he's not doing you any good. Simply owning books, nice books, expensive books, good books, and not reading them is not beneficial to you. Maybe one day we'll, we'll give an episode about books that everybody owns and nobody reads. I think there's a lot of that out there. Good commentary in Matthew. I reference R.T. France, his critical commentary. Great commentary, very helpful stuff. He and Bill are not right on everything that they write. They are helpful, though, if people are prepared to use them properly. When we're talking about critical commentaries and building that aspect, these are the experts within their field, so if you want to put it that way, the, the brain surgeons. This is where commentary surveys like the New Testament Commentary Survey by D.A. Carson that we've talked about before or the Old Testament Commentary Survey by Tremper Longman. It's where they are very handy. They can tell you the strengths and weaknesses of the critical commentaries so that you can make a more informed decision about purchasing them because critical commentaries tend to be the more expensive commentaries that you're going to purchase. For instance, G.K. Bill's commentary is going to run you anywhere from $70 to $100. It's worth that if you're able and will use it. You cannot apply what you don't understand. This is why critical commentaries are important. You cannot apply what you do not understand. A lot of times with intro and moderate reads, we read something, we think we understand what's going on, but we've missed it because we haven't done the in-depth work to understand fully what's going on. That's where a critical commentary becomes helpful. Critical commentaries are also helpful in making sure that we're preaching the right point from the right passage rather than the right point from the wrong passage. A lot of times we preach things that are true and good, but we're using the wrong passages to do it. We need to allow the scriptures to speak for themselves and make the points that the scriptures are making rather than making points out of scriptures that aren't there. And critical commentaries are also helpful because they answer arguments that people raise. In an intro to a book, you're typically not going to find much discussion of argumentation over critical passages. Uh, you will find some of that. You'll be introduced to it within a moderate read, but it's not going to detail all the arguments and discussions about every passage within the book, whereas that is the focus of a critical commentary, digging in, trying to discern the technical aspects of what's going on. Very helpful, very needed, but not for everybody at every stage. I hope you've enjoyed this, and I hope that this discussion of commentaries is helpful to you. I like 
individual commentaries because I can focus on these three areas. I can find myself a good introduction structure, I can find a good moderate read, and I can then find a good critical content read. When you're going to a commentary set, one volume within a set is not going to do all three things. And so I think it's much better suited to buy three books as opposed to buying a set whenever you want to study one book to buy. Furthermore, it's more economically feasible. And I say this because you can't study the whole Bible at one time. And what I mean by that is you can't read all of Linsky's 12 volumes within a year, right? It's impossible. You may decide you're going to study Matthew, and you could read all of Linsky on Matthew within a year and have a whole lot of time left over. If you decide you want to study Matthew solidly, you could buy yourself an introduction, buy yourself a moderate read, and after you've gone through that material, you feel like you have a good foundation, buy yourself a critical read, and within that year, you've spent less than 100 bucks, and you've actually bought material that you've interacted and used rather than material that's sitting on your shelf collecting dust because you simply can't get to it all. Some thoughts, food for thought. You may not agree with everything that I've I've said you may have some questions, you may have some disagreements, I'd be happy to hear from you. Take those, listen to them, consider them, discuss them. Send it to us at christianresearcher at gmail.com, christianresearcher at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Uh, Sorry for the inconsistency and the longer episode that we have today, but I hope this material is helpful, beneficial. God bless, and Lord willing, we'll catch you next time. Better is our sacrifice. He paid the, he paid the price, the price. He paid it all upon the cross. No longer bound by sin or with eternal loss. He took my sin and washed it away. When I was immersed in that watery grave, I heard that gospel call because he paid it all.